Hello and welcome to the Lancet Child and Adolescent Health Podcast. My name is Esther Lau and I am the Senior Editor of the Journal. Today I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Mark Thompson, lead author of a paper looking at underdetection of laboratory-confirmed influenza in acutely ill infants admitted to hospital. Mark, welcome and please introduce yourself. Hi, I'm Mark Thompson. I'm an epidemiologist and the Deputy Branch Chief for Science in the Epidemiology and Prevention Branch in the Influenza Division at the US CDC. Great, thank you for joining us. Influenza virus infections are among the leading contributors to acute upper and lower respiratory disease in infants younger than one year. Um, before we talk about your study, can you tell us some of the challenges in studying the disease burden of influenza virus infections in this age group? Well, the biggest challenge is that very few studies have focused exclusively on infants. So most studies of laboratory-confirmed influenza among hospitalized children end up combining infants with other age groups. So at best, you'll see results broken down by children under age 2 or under age 5. But infants, you know, are, are different from older children in a number of ways, and some that are specifically uh, increase their vulnerability to influenza complications. So with a hospitalized infant, it's more likely that it's their first infection with influenza, and they are combating this infection with an immature immune system. And even their, the physiology of their airway and their lungs is also underdeveloped at that point. So it's very important to um, specifically look at this population indeed. Your study looked at um, influenza-associated hospital emissions in infants in four countries. Can you briefly describe the study design and how you confirmed if the infants indeed had influenza virus infection? Right. So CDC and APT Associates, which was the coordinating organization with this um, contracted study, collaborated with partners in Albania, Jordan, Nicaragua, and the Philippines. And our study design was very straightforward. We enrolled all infants under age one who were admitted to the hospital with any acute illness that had developed in the past 10 days. So we did this during two influenza seasons in Albania, Jordan, and Nicaragua, and then during one long continuous period in the Philippines. So at hospital admission, we collected nasal and throat swabs and also collected blood from the infants. And then we brought them back again three or four weeks later and collected blood again. So this gave us a chance to test for influenza infection in, in two ways. So first, we tested for influenza virus shedding with these combined nasal and throat swabs using PCR molecular diagnostics. And then by having the blood, we had what's called acute and convalescent sera pairs, which were tested for influenza antibodies using serologic diagnostics and specifically the hemagglutination inhibition assay. So since it takes, you know, the body... Um, anywhere from like two to three weeks to produce antibodies to influenza. The sera that we collected at admission serves as a baseline snapshot of the infant's immunity. And then we're looking for a fourfold increase in antibodies to either A or B viruses a few weeks later as an indicator that the infant was infected at, at admission. And let's talk about some of the findings. So you included in your final sample um, 1,943 infants, and you found that 254 of them had influenza confirmed by PCR, serology, or both. 
Um, but you found that only 40% of these infants were positive by serology only. What could explain the discordance between the PCR and serological diagnoses? Well, this was a surprise, certainly to me. Uh, you know, to take a step back, I should tell you that this study was not my idea. It was the idea of several of my co-investigators here at CDC and our study partners. And as they reminded me recently, when the study was first proposed, I wasn't really sold on the idea. Uh, my initial reaction was that, you know, we already know that children shed viruses abundantly and for a very long time. So, you know, conventional wisdom was that PCR diagnostics do a very thorough job of identifying acute influenza infections. So unfortunately, no one listened to me, and we went ahead and did the study anyway, and we found that about 13% of all the hospitalized infants were positive for influenza by either PCR or serology. And when you break it down, 5% were positive by both methods, 3% were positive by PCR only, and 5% were positive by serology only. So since infants have, you know, an immature immune system, it's not really surprising that you'd have this 3% that are positive by PCR but don't see this corresponding antibody increase. The surprising part really is that 5% of all infants, or as you were saying, you know, 40% of all the positives who showed a fourfold increase in influenza antibodies between admission and follow-up, but they were negative for PCR when we tested them at admission. And there's, you know, a, a few possible explanations for this. One is that the, a number of these were not flu-infected at admission, but were infected sometime afterwards. So, you know, for example, we know that nosocomial infection is not uncommon. It's also possible that infants were discharged, went home, caught the flu from one of their siblings, and still had time to develop antibodies by the time we drew their blood at follow-up. You know, we think it's unlikely that this represents a large number of cases, but ideally in the future, you would swab the infants throughout hospitalizations and follow-up, and that would really help sort this out. But the bulk of these serology-only cases we really have to look and say, well, why would they? Why would PCR miss this this true infection? And here too, I think there's there's a few possible ex explanations. You know, most of us are really used to thinking of PCR as the gold standard test for flu, but when you look at the literature, when people test, you know, older children and adults, and you use different swab types, so you compare a nasal swab to or a throat swab to a nasal pharyngeal swab, you know you can get different influenza results from different swap types. So PCR is highly sensitive, highly specific assay, but it's not perfect. And the truth is we don't have a lot of data on how this or other diagnostic assays perform with infants. But it's, it's also possible that the virus was simply not concentrated in the upper respiratory tract, which is where we looked for it. It was con concentrated someplace else, uh, like the lower respiratory tract, and that has been noted in um, during the pandemic, for example, where the H1 virus seemed to concentrate more in the lower respiratory tract, which is harder to collect specimens from. We did find in our study that these serology-only infants were more likely to have been admitted late in their illness. They're more likely to have 
more signs of acute respiratory distress. So, so that fits that possibility of this lower respiratory tract um, concentration. And finally, I should say that, you know, although this was kind of the first study at, at this scale, there had been a couple of other studies that had tested, you know, wider age groups of children with PCR and serology. And they had found almost identical results of about 40% of cases were missed by PCR. So that's encouraging. And here we have a much larger sample and can make a more specific kind of conclusion as it applies to infants. Among the 254 infants with confirmed influenza, 33% only had um, non-respiratory clinical discharge diagnoses. So taking the results together, you found that um, by focusing on respiratory diagnoses and molecular diagnostic, which is PCR, um, underdetects the burden of influenza-associated hospital emissions in infants. So talk us through the magnitude of the problem and the clinical and public health implications of this finding. Right, so this is the other piece of the puzzle. When you're able to test all acutely ill infants, regardless of their clinical diagnosis, what we found is about one in three of the infants with influenza were discharged with only a non-respiratory diagnosis. So febrile seizures, sepsis, or a clinical sign like extreme dehydration. But the clinicians did not view them as having a respiratory illness. So finding that infants can present with influenza in atypical ways is, is not going to be a surprise to the pediatricians that are listening. listening. Um, and, you know, it fits with a couple of previous studies of children in emergency departments. Um, but this gives us some hard data that, that supports, I think, that, that clinical um, impression that we hear. So to put all this together, we did a mathematical model that combined the clinical findings and the serology findings we were talking about together and calculated what's called an under-detection multiplier. And the model um, takes into account variations that we would see across site and across, across the countries. So our bottom line finding, putting all this together, is that the total number of influenza cases uh, they were identified by testing all acutely ill infants by both PCR and serology was 2.6-fold higher than the number identified by testing only infants with respiratory illness with PCR. So even if we take that number and say, well, conservatively, the true burden of influenza is likely now twice as high as we typically assume. That has a number of you know, implications. So the biggest implication is around influenza vaccine policy. And right now, throughout the world, there are debates going on, especially in low- and middle-income countries, around whether to invest in maternal influenza vaccination, which would benefit infants under six months old, and whether to invest in direct vaccination of infants that are older than six months old. So for a lot of these countries, the economic math is very, very tight. As you know, they have lots of competing priorities. And what really stands out for them in their discussions really is severe disease. That preventing hospitalizations associated with influenza or, or their other potential pathogens they have vaccine preventable solutions for, that's really the central part of the discussion. So 
coming to them and saying, you know, you potentially have doubled the burden you thought you had in infants and thus double the potential preventive value of influenza vaccines, you know, could be a game changer. And then for high-income countries like the U.S., I think there are also potential implications clinically, policy-wise. For clinicians, as I was saying, um, there's been this suspicion that there's a lot of atypical presentation, but this puts some hard numbers to it and, and reminds clinicians to have this increased suspicion of influenza in infants. For the policy side, um, again, knowing we have a lot of room to improve our vaccine coverage, uh, despite universal recommendations among pregnant women and for infants over age six months. And then here at the CDC and elsewhere where, you know, part of our job is to improve vaccine options, you know, it's really motivated us to look and, and think about having better vaccine options for pregnant women, for infants, and not just the types of vaccines, but the strategies, how we use it, the dosing and the timing of it. So um, it's broke a lot of exciting discussions. It's a fascinating study and lots of food for thought indeed. Um, so do check out the paper on our website and tell us what you think on Twitter at Lancet Child Adult. Um, Mark, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me.